1: we are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com Dale to support this podcast. So in several disciplines of spiritual practice, there are, there are two main paths. There's the path of yoga and the path of tantra. Yoga is the path of eliminating obstacles through control. You notice that you're angry, or you're frightened, or you're agitated, and you do practices to eliminate what it is you're feeling. In fact, in yoga there is the Ashtanga yoga, the eight limbs of yoga, and that includes such things as meditation, concentration, breathing exercises, pranayama, hatha yoga, the postures, moral discipline, controlling the senses, positive duties like doing rituals. And then finally, at the end of all that, you get to samadhi or bliss. But it's a long path of controlling, gradually wearing away the obstacles to get to that place of uh, samadhi or openness or bliss. In the healing path that we've been talking about, the first two sections of invocation and compassion are essentially yogic practices of learning to do various practices to deepen your awareness, to deepen your compassion. Somatically, we've been talking about grounding, centering, appropriate boundaries. And we haven't talked very much about the stage that comes after the open heart, the stage of compassion or loving-kindness or devotion, forgiveness, gratitude, all those open-hearted qualities, the the stage that comes before the end stage of wholeness, healing, non-duality. And on our healing paradigm, we've called that stage empowerment. Today, we're using a much more common term, although a bit more traditional, if you will, of tantra. And tantra, instead of controlling and eliminating obstacles through control uh, or suppressing with awareness, if you will, suppressing difficulties. Tantra applies discipline to the releasing of goals and attainments. And in a way, Tantra is about being aware of enjoyment. In fact, one of the ways of talking about it is we begin to see everything as the mother, or we begin to see all of it as part of the divine. Now, it's very difficult to do this until we've done a bunch of yoga, until we have spent a lot of time cultivating enough awareness and enough compassion so that we can begin to have this very different, juicy, loving open relationship with our experience. There's a mistake in the West, I think, that a lot of people hold, that when we think of Tantra, we think of sexual Tantra. And yet, Tantra is really applied, not just to sexuality, but to eating, to breathing, to being with a friend, to enjoying nature. And it really is much more the quality of being able to identify with experience as divine, as sacred, in a way even you becoming the deity. So, for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism, certainly in Hinduism, there becomes a stage where you go in and you see the teacher and you've done enough awareness and compassion practice that the teacher gives you certain mantras or certain visualizations where you begin to realize that you are this being that you have been yearning for, that you have been invoking. And it doesn't have to be a theistic endeavor. It can be much more Buddhist in the sense of just being with perception, if you will. So that one of the practices that promotes Tantra is being with the initial perception again and again and again Rather than you have a perception and you say, Oh, I have a pain in my knee. No, there's just this sensation arising, and then there's another sensation arising, and then there's emotion arising. And you're, it's almost like you're surfing on that wave of constantly arising sensation. And that you're more interested in your relationship with the experience in a way than you are with the content of the experience. And that the relationship is a profoundly loving relationship. So that I think that shows us how it becomes easier to do this after we go into the compassion stage, because once again, the heart of compassion, the heart of love, has the quality of boundlessness. And we still have the content of experience. In Tantra, you still feel the pain in your knee or the joy in your heart or experience the pleasant or the unpleasant emotion but because your heart is so open there isn't the need for resistance there is this dying into love if you will with each experience as it's arising and that you're you're more interested in this loving relationship with a rising experience than you are with the content itself as an example you or I are driving down the freeway. Somebody does something very recklessly and selfishly. Uh, you have to slam on your brakes or be really careful or do something that you feel is a bad thing to do and you get angry. Now, if you're in the awareness, invocation stage of practice, you're aware of the anger, you keep paying attention to the anger. And the notion is that if you do this for a few decades, that eventually anger begins to wear away, and you'll begin to notice, I'm not looking at you. No, no, no. I I just... (laughs) Okay, you will begin to notice, and you'll begin to directly experience that being caught in anger causes suffering. And you realize that I don't want to suffer, and there is then a kind of a natural movement toward wholeness. Meditators and psychologists have found that if we add compassion into the process here, we're not only aware of the anger, but we're compassionate for the part in us that's feeling angry because that is suffering, because we're lost in the anger. That greatly speeds up the process. But now we've got two things to do. okay? But there's a third thing we can do, which is the tantric part of it. And in fact, I've even jokingly referred to this process as the tantric three-step dance as Opposed to the country two-step, right? So the first step is you're aware letting go of the narrative. I'm feeling anger sufferings arising the second step is one is you I are having compassion for the place in me that's caught in the emotion and that compassion opens up the heart which allows us to go into the third step, which is we go beyond there's a me having this relationship, this emotion, and it's more the relationship. It's more the sense that the emotion itself is an expression of divine reality. It's not, it's not good or bad. It's not pure and impure. It is what it is. So in in yoga, in a lot of schools of yoga, people pay very careful attention to what goes in and out of their mouth. They don't drink alcohol. They don't swear. They say nice things. They pay attention to how they breathe and how they sleep and how they move their body. And in Tantra, the notion is that anger and whiskey and sex are just as much God as calmness, and celibacy and chamomile tea. But there is still a, a me who is having this tantric relationship with experience. It's not non-duality yet. Okay, it's the, it's the stage before non-duality, but we're going beyond pure and impure. And it's a really tricky practice because there is profound enjoyment and ecstasy available when you go deeply into sensory experience without any, any judgment, without any superego, without any embarrassment, without any grasping. Tantra believes that there is literally no particle of reality that isn't capable of revealing ecstasy and that everything that exists is full of light and awareness, which is a quote from a woman Tantra teacher called Sally Kempton. I used to be a yogi, but to, to be honest with you, I don't do a lot of yoga practice. If I, went, I had meat for brunch today, I occasionally have a glass of wine if I feel like it. I, just, I meditate in a more tantric way where it's a kind of a relationship with God rather than I'm trying to control my breath or calm things down. Mother Teresa when she would be going out into the streets of Calcutta to find people to bring back to her hospice. She said, I I see a leper in the gutter, and as I come to pick him up, I see Christ in his distressing disguise. So, in a way, it's all Christ in his disguise. Sometimes the, the disguise is much more distressing than others, and I would suggest that when somebody is dying or somebody is a leper in the streets of Calcutta, the disguise is so tattered that it's maybe easier to see Christ than when we look around the room because our disguises are so much better. We've gotten used to believing each other's disguises and we see the stories, the identities that people have been presenting as, here's who I am. I have this personality and these patterns and, you know, that's who I am. Is it possible to look around the room and see Christ, or see the Mother, or see the Buddha, which is vibrating in every cell in everybody's body in every moment of our experience? I was with Maharaji, and he. Uh, I was with my friend Mohan, and there were a bunch of Indian people there, and Maharaji was talking to the Indian people about something, and he turned to Mohan and me and said, How much do you have to pay for milk in America? And Mohan made a quick calculation in his head and said, Oh, Maharaji, it's X rupees per kilo, which is the way you buy milk in India. And Maharaji said, Oh, that's so much. And he turned to the Indians. He was going on and on and on about how much these Americans pay for milk in I was starting to feel kind of bored and thinking, you know, I'd just gotten out of Stanford. I had my PhD. I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't the right place after all. I mean, what do I care about the price of milk in America? And then he turned back to Mo and said, how much was it again? And he did the whole thing again. He's talking on and on. And I'm thinking, really, you know what? Maybe this guy isn't who Ramdas said he was. I was kind of really dumbfounded. And then all of a sudden, there was an explosion in my mind this realization, and I know it came from Maharaji, I can't tell you how, but he said, we could talk about interesting things, we could talk about God and important things, but that just makes the mind busy. If we're talking about trivial things like the price of skim milk in America, it gives us the opportunity to rest in this ocean of bliss that's always available, this tantric relationship with experience. And I went into this deep bliss state for the rest of the day. I could barely talk. I was so overwhelmed with love. The point of a story, at least to me, is that's always available. Maybe it was easier sitting in front of Maharaji, but I'm sure that everyone in this room has had that experience at one point or another, where maybe looking into someone's eyes or the birth of your child or some time out in nature, where life was clearly just an expr- an expression of the loving nature of reality. In a way, spiritual practice is undoing the conditioning that veils us from that realization. And when you meet somebody who is living in that reality, it is quite remarkable. So that I could be sitting in front of Maharaji and I could be feeling inadequate because he'd given the guy next to me a name and he hadn't given me a name yet or he'd given that person a mantra and I hadn't gotten my mantra yet and I'm feeling inadequate or maybe I'm feeling a bit lustful or maybe I'm feeling frightened. And he kept loving me in just the same way. I had really loving parents. But if I was bad enough, whatever bad means, they would pull back a little bit. And almost everybody I've met in my life with a few remarkable exceptions... Love in a conditional way because they love themselves in a conditional way. I can tell another story where I was with Maharaji and I uh, had just gotten to India. I was my mind was chaotic from all that time studying mathematics at Cal and at Stanford, and I said, Maharaji, how should I meditate? My mind is really a mess. And he said, See all women as the mother, and you'll be able to meditate, which is really a tantric teaching right that instead of trying to control my mind if I see it all as the mother if I you could see all women as I could see all women as the mother I would be in that open state I would be in that juicy relationship I would not be caught in clinging and attachment there are traditional practices some of them are theistic some of them are very non-theistic there are theistic practices where you are attracted to a certain deity, the Divine Mother, Hanuman, Krishna, Amitabha, Buddha, whatever it might be, Tara. And you you say a mantra to that being, you visualize that being, you, you begin to realize that you are the nature of that being. And maybe I even got slightly distracted from your question about what I would be doing on the freeway, is that anger arises. And anger from the standpoint of yoga, is is an obstacle to be overcome. From the standpoint of Tantra, anger is exactly the same energy that we use to meditate with. It's the same energy that we create with. It's the same energy that distinguishes between wisdom and ignorance. When somebody comes to a meditation teacher and the meditation teacher says, Oh, do you have much anger in your life, and the person says, oh, I'm hardly ever angry, the meditation teacher probably thinks, well, they're not going to go very far. (laughs) But if somebody says, yeah, I've got a lot of anger, the teacher says, good, this is energy we can work with here. It's the same energy. So from the standpoint of Tantra, there you are on the freeway, you're angry, and in an instant, you can transmute anger into wisdom. Vipassana meditation, Theravada Buddhism, awareness, mindfulness practice, gradually eliminates obstacles through awareness. Compassion transforms, gradually but much more quickly, obstacles through compassion and love. And Tantra has the ability to instantaneously, in a moment, in a mind moment, to transmute what yoga would call an obstacle into a loving relationship with the divine. One of the practices is to open to grace in every moment, seeing no distinction between the mundane and the spiritual. Like in this moment, I'm talking, you're listening, you're collecting ideas. Is it a spiritual moment? Is it a mundane moment? Who knows? But is there grace available in this moment? Or are we caught up in the notions that are being presented through the words. Another often used technique is non-conceptual mantra, just like the word OM or HUM or the the seed syllables of the chakras, where you're, you're not using mantra to try to relate to God, but you're just using it to open to the vibration of reality, if you will. One time somebody asked Maharaji, what is the best form to worship God? In India, there's so many gods. There's a whole pantheon. There's dozens and dozens of gods. And he said, the best form to worship God is every form. <laughs> That's Tantra, right? It's, it's not a religious thing where I've got my little statue and I like my statue better than your statue. I like my God better than your God. It's all God. I will admit that there are certainly times for me, and I'm sure for you, where the obstacle is so stuck in our psyche that what I'm talking about isn't possible. That at times we have to go back to yogic practices with no blame or regret. At times we have to go back to yogic practices and uh, become aware and develop compassion or get grounded and centered and do the things we've been talking about. But I would suggest that we can get caught in these yogic practices for a long, long time, not realizing that, at least for certain issues that are arising in our lives, we can do that instantaneous transmutation. That it doesn't have to be a big deal. That once you've had that experience one time, you can do it again, and you can do it again. You can keep surrendering into... That wholeness. And in a way, what we're talking about here in Tantra is surrendering into a level of reality, a level of consciousness that's always there, but is often covered over by our character structure. Tantra teaches work hard to liberate yourself from all want, from all attachment. And letting go of attachment then reveals this this alive beingness presence that is is inherent, innate in every experience, no matter what the content is. Now, in the West, the depictions or notions of the divine tend to be the God of light. Yahweh, Mary, I mean, I guess the Old Testament is a little more... Uh, an eye for an eye, than the New Testament. But still, there aren't too many depictions of the Dark Mother or the Dark Divine. There is the Black Virgin of Guadalupe, maybe, and a few other things like that in Hispanic Catholic traditions. But in Hinduism and Buddhism, they make a very clear and distinct point to bring forth depictions of the dark mother, the dark father, Shiva, Kali, Durga, so that you realize that cancer and death and confusion and Republicans versus Democrats and all these crazy things that are going on aren't other than God. The beloved can only be everything. If God is only the good stuff, we've got big problems. (laughs) It's just somehow that to me, doesn't work at all. And I remember once we were with Maharaji and uh, something was difficult and some Westerners were bemoaning what was going on. And this older Indian devotee, Dada, said, you Westerners don't understand. You think that Maharaji is bringing only the good stuff. It's all Maharaji. The confusion, the fear, as well as the love and the devotion. It's It's all coming from that one source. And I'm not saying Maharaji as opposed to any other form—it's—it's all—it's all God. It's all coming from that source. So in a way, that's very freeing. It lets go of a whole certain level of efforting, where we're trying to control things and fix things and saying that's bad, and I've got to get good, and I've got, I'm you know juggling and comparing and categorizing everything. As we have talked before in that book *Hara* by Durkheim. He says that there are three levels of working with the breath. The first level is paying attention to the breath. I'm paying attention to the breath and noticing how sometimes it's hard. The second level is you begin to notice what he calls, quote, the wrong use of I. You're beginning to see your character structure through your relationship with breathing. The third level of being with the breath is you begin to get, in a fundamental way, The supernatural quality of breath, he calls it. The divine quality that is in each inhalation and exhalation. Here there's, I'm having divine experience, if you will. In non-duality, there's no experience, or there's no I left. This is a practice that I would suggest that you don't try to sit down and do for half an hour. But just at times, short bursts, a minute, three minutes, five minutes... See if you can be with your experience, being on that edge of perception, not getting caught up in stories about it, and even surrendering into the divine nature of things. And divine doesn't mean necessarily that the angels are coming and playing their harps and their trumpets, that it's all rainbows and pink clouds. It can be very simple and straightforward. But there's a there's an aliveness, there's a sense of beingness that one is experiencing so that Sometimes the breath is just the breath, breathing in, breathing out, and sometimes there's a sense of presence that's being revealed as we're breathing. Once again, Tantra is usually not taught until one has had a lot of training in awareness practice and in heart practice. And one begins to see how suffering arises through grasping and compassion begins to alleviate grasping. I mean, I remember another story here. I was in India. I was doing these Goenka retreats, 10-day meditation retreats, and between number two and three or between three and four or something, I don't know, I had to go and cash some traveler's checks. And it was an hour away to get to the closest bank. So I, I took this rickshaw. I got to the bank. To cash a traveler's check could take like two hours in a small Indian bank. I'm waiting there, and somebody else comes into the bank who's also at the meditation retreat. And I said, hi, what are you doing? How's it going? He said, well, I'm watching my breath, aren't you? And I I was just enjoying being in India so much, I wasn't watching my breath at all. I was was watching India. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's hard. It takes discipline. I'm not saying that I was wrong and he was right or the other way around. I don't even know. But... What I'm saying is that for me, this tantric approach has much more juice and appeal than just trying to be a yogi and watch my breath and eat carefully. And The point of these beginning practices is to balance the mind enough that it's not chaotic, it's, it's quiet enough that what we're talking about is often possible. And there will still be places like... As I said, last night I got a text message from the Fairfax Police Department saying, and I was an hour from home teaching a class, and I got a text message from the police saying, evacuate your home immediately. Uh (laughs) I said, whoa. And I said, well, I've evacuated. I'm in San Francisco, (laughs) right? And then three minutes later I got another text saying, we didn't mean you, we meant the people in the building that contains the, the unit where the fire is. But it was only like a one minute walk from my house where the fire was. But for three minutes there, I thought, yeah, maybe my house is on fire. That was challenging. If you're angry because it's traffic or something and you find anger difficult, and you're not able to transmute the anger into the sense of beingness, and you feel a little frustrated, can you transmute the frustration I just found a quote in those last few days from this poet Kabir. Wherever you are is the entry point. Maybe the anger is too hot right now, but maybe in 10 seconds, it's, it's calmed down enough that wherever that is, you can do the transmutation. Start practicing with not the 500-pound gorilla in the room, but the the more workable experiences where you're not really angry or rageful, but you're slightly irritated or you're a little bit bored or you're a little bit agitated or something. And can you use that? Like, I used that uh, story with Maharaji and the price of skim milk. I was really, I was bored. I had the advantage that I think he gave me some direct transmission of something but that that direct transmission is always available in the moment anger is your life in the moment where you're angry that's it's anger and anger is hard to be present for and anger can threaten people and anger tends to dump unhealthy chemicals in your bloodstream and all those things but anger is just anger yeah, so there's no need to judge yourself and that's one of the gifts of tantra is that the pros and the cons of yoga and the tantra the 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 pro of of yoga is that you have some control over your life you're you're not out on this precipice of drinking and fornicating doing all these things the the con of yoga is that you can be really controlling you can get kind of dry whereas the the pro of of tantra is that it's all God, it's, you don't have to control, you can relax. But the danger is, you can get caught in enjoyment. And it's a very difficult path to embark upon without a teacher.